We are uh, studying uh, in the book of Romans, this passage in Romans chapter 12. The, they're, they're a hinge in the book of Romans. They begin with the word, therefore. Therefore, which means whatever is happening in Romans chapter 12 depends on whatever happened before Romans chapter 12. Starts with the word therefore. So we've really been studying the word therefore for three Sundays already. And this morning we're going to get to by the mercies of God, which is still part of the therefore, right? Because he says therefore by the mercies of God. In other words, he is in that expression by the mercies of God summarizing what comes before chapter 12 in the book of Romans. So one way you could title the whole book of Romans up to chapter 12 is the mercies of God. And that is what is elaborated. Now, we began in chapter 1, and we read there that the subject of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. Well, that's an interesting set of bookends, isn't it? The righteousness of God, the mercies of God. And back in chapter 1, we read the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. The good news is the revelation of the righteousness of God. And I think, now wait a second. How does righteousness go with mercy? I can see how mercy's good news. It's hard to see how righteousness is good news. Well, we've been talking all about that. But I wanted to start this morning with this question. We're looking at the word therefore, and I wanted to ask you, I want you to think this morning as we talk about the mercies of God in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans, I wanted to ask you to think while we're talking about that, about this question. What comes before therefore in your life? Does that make sense? It seems a little abstracted, maybe. But let me say it this way. Suppose there was some set of things true, followed by the word therefore, and then you. You are what satisfies the therefore out of some set of things true. What set of things true would account for you, for your character and behavior? Is it the mercies of God? Or the righteousness of God revealed in the person of Christ? If not, then this adjustment that Paul urges us is good advice for you. And I guess for most of us, we're Christians. 
we would have to say, well, kind of. If I said, is the gospel the thing that comes before therefore and explains you, I would have to say, well, kind of. All right. So just have that in mind while we talk about this. We've, we've started in, uh, in Romans 1 where we talked about the gospel is the righteousness of God in Christ, in Christ, by Christ, credited to us on the basis of faith. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, the faith alone, in, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The righteousness of God is credited to us. Now that is the explanation of how the righteousness of God might be good news to anyone because when Isaiah stood before God, the righteousness of God was the opposite of good news. It was terrifying. And the righteousness of God, if any one of us actually encountered it in any kind of face-to-face fashion, would scare us to death. Literally. Because God's righteousness, we are not righteous. And real, true, absolute, perfect righteousness, how does it handle unrighteousness? In judgment and wrath, which is, of course, what Paul writes right here in Romans. He says, the gospel's good news because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he includes all people in that category. So the revelation of God's righteousness in Christ imputed to me on the basis of my simply receiving the gift is good news because otherwise I am doomed and this is what we call salvation rescue being grabbed from in front of the moving train I was about to be obliterated and the righteousness of Christ imputed to me has yanked me out of the way of God's wrath that is good news Then in chapter 5, we had this pause for singing where Paul says repeatedly, we exult, we exult. We even exult when things go wrong because we know that for the person who is the child of God by union with Christ, we know that God takes even the stuff that goes wrong, the stuff that pains us and causes suffering in our lives, he takes those things and improves our faith through them. It brings us into deeper faith and greater character and more encouraged hope in Christ, the hope that does not disappoint, he says. And we, we exult in the pouring, outpouring of God's love into each of us by the giving of the Holy Spirit into each of us and into us, 
There's only things to rejoice over. So there in chapter 5, I think Paul's pausing and saying, look, open the treasure chest and count the money. And at the end of chapter 5, he kind of repeats and summarizes the story. In Adam, all sinned. In Christ, we have the grace of God in the imputed righteousness of Christ. In one man, we all became sinners. In the one sin, we all became lost. And in the one righteous life, we are restored. And not just restored. Restored. I don't just come back to zero on the righteousness scale because of the work of Christ. It's more than just as if you never sinned. It is just as if you lived the perfect way that Jesus lived. Well, that's some good news. And then Paul asks the question in chapter 6. He says, so, sin abounds, grace abounds. You can't out-sin the grace of God. So then he says, I know what you're thinking now. So we should just sin so that grace may abound. And then Paul goes into this section, 6, 7, and 8 chapters in the book, how the righteousness of Christ works out in us. The first bad proposal is, well, just keep on sinning and grace will bounce. And Paul says, that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. No, sin's the thing you were saved from. Sin's the thing that would have killed you apart from Christ and you want to keep, that's like jumping back into the quicksand after you've been pulled out of it. Are you dumb? Come on. That's his response to that proposal. That's the most ridiculous of all proposals. And he says, no, instead of, instead of having been freed from your slavery to sin, enslaving yourself again to sin, no, Instead, enslave yourself to God as an instrument of this righteousness that you already have credit for. So that's the first bad proposal. The second bad proposal is in chapter 7, which is try harder. Just do your best to obey God. And Paul, the apostle Paul, says, yeah, Here's what happens. I find, I find this problem in my own life, he says. I try to do right, and I can't. I try not to do wrong, and while I'm trying not to do wrong, I suddenly find myself doing wrong. So I, I know the law of God is good and right, and I wish I could do it and the end of chapter 7 is who can save me from this desperate condition I see the goodness of righteousness 
And I can't get myself to do it. Now the problem is, if I'm the one doing it, I, can't, I don't have it. So doing our best to obey the law of God doesn't work. Just giving up and giving in to sin doesn't work, obviously. So what is correct righteousness? Well, he proposes it in chapter 6. Yield yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. In other words, who is doing the righteousness that you do? God is. All other righteousness is false. Even misleading might think you make you think you're a pretty good person. And at the same time being a bad person. All true righteousness is sourced in God. If you are not living in your created likeness to God and displaying his image, what you're doing, even when it's right, it's wrong. So what, how do you bring forth any genuine righteousness? Only by yielding yourself to God in union with Christ. This is how Jesus did it. What's he tell us all through the book of John? You're probably tired of hearing this by now. All through the book of John, I don't do anything except what the Father's doing. All I do is offer myself, yield myself to God as an instrument of his righteousness. And in that way, Jesus, walking by faith, lived in perfect righteousness as a man his whole life. And so Paul encourages you to adopt that strategy. Yield yourself to God in Christ by the Spirit. Become his instrument of righteousness. When you do your best to obey, you doing your best is disobedient already. When you let God do what God does using you, good. That's real. Okay, well, there's the review. <laughs> so now we come to chapter 9, the mercies of God. It's interesting because it's a discussion in the interpretation of Romans 12.1, the phrase mercies of God. What's it actually referring to? And it's an argument whether it's referring to the whole book of Romans or just to chapter 9, 10, and 11. Because we don't find the word mercy in the book of Romans until we get to chapter 9, which is interesting. So here's what I think about that question. I think, well, it's the whole thing, especially 9, 10, and 11. That's how I think of it. And that's why we reviewed the whole thing, not just chapter 9, 10, and 11. But what does chapters 9, 10, and 11 say about the mercies of God? Let's look into that. Maybe you have a Bible. You could look at Romans chapter 9. Now, 
The other function of this passage, chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans, is to explain what about the Jews? God's, what about, I mean, what about Israel, God's chosen people? And of course, there's a, there's a spectrum of interpretations about what these chapters say about that question. But we're going to just kind of glance at that question in order to think about the mercies of God as they're presented in these texts. And we're going to start in verse 14 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? Oh no, it's referring to something that came in the first 14 verses, 13 verses, where he makes the case that... Uh, to be a true descendant of Abraham is to be a believer, not to be a physical descendant of Abraham. That's what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, didn't he? When they said, we're the sons of Abraham, he said, if you were Abraham's sons, you'd recognize me, because Abraham loves me. He couldn't wait for me to get here, and you don't even recognize me. So I don't think you're really related to Abraham. Paul makes a similar point here in chapter 9. That the nation of Israel has, in a certain sense, been sort of set aside for some time for the bringing in of the Gentiles into the fold of Christ. All right, so... Like I said, I'm not going to try to explain all that today. But what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's the first mention of the word mercy in the book of Romans. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, Read this next verse very carefully. So then, it does not depend on the man. The person who receives God's mercy, that mercy does not depend on that person. It'd be hard to call it mercy if it did. But anyway, he says, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, I think <laughs> all of us have trouble with this. We want to receive stuff that depends on me. But God's mercies are sovereign. And they are dispensed according to God's own will in such a way that it does not depend at all on anything about the person who receives it. Now, I think it's important to... Notice that, it, that we're talking about mercy. 
In other words, not receiving some bad thing that I actually deserve. I should be punished, but I receive mercy, so that means I'm not punished. And here's the problem. All of us people, we think we're pretty good. And we overestimate our own righteousness and we underestimate God's. This is a universal condition of all human beings. We, I think, well, God's got to be okay with me. I mean, I'm not as bad as him. And you know what he's saying? I think God's pretty good with me because I'm not as bad as him. I, it's very easy for me to judge your sins and very easy for me to not judge my own sins. And by the way, I also think God's not that righteous because he lets people get away with anything. He's like your grandfather. You know, you could kill somebody and he's still going to be okay with you. Here's what we need to know when we're talking about God's mercy. If God does not have mercy on someone, he is not doing them wrong, ever. If he did not have mercy on you, he would not be doing you wrong. He'd be doing exactly right. That's, the, that's what mercy means. But verse 19 says, You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? <laughs> verse 18, it said, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. He just reminded us about Pharaoh, whom he hardened in his God resistance. And this says, well, so God hardens the ones he wants to harden and he has mercy on the ones he wants to have mercy on. And someone will say then, well, how can he blame us then? How can he hold us responsible? And then the rest of the chapter, Paul's addressing that question. His first answer to that question comes from Jeremiah, I believe, and it's the potter and the clay answer. It's also the, a different version of the answer that God gave to Job. When Job said, you know, I'm quite sure if God came and explained himself, I'd find out what the problem is. And God finally shows up and he says, I don't owe you any explanation, Job. We want to treat God like, you know, we're on the same level. And Paul says, look, does the clay say to the potter, what the heck? What are you doing here? We have to keep straight that God is God and we're not. That's Paul's first answer to this question. I don't know if that helps you. <laughs> doesn't really help emotionally very much, but it's the truth. 
God is God and you're not. Oh, and then there's the second part of the answer was is point number two in our outline. All of this is the revelation of God's glory, which is the supreme value in all things. If you think you're here for any other reason than God's own glory, you're just simply mistaken. Because everything is for his glory. If he has mercy on you, it's for his glory. And if he executes his wrath on you, it's for his glory. It's, an, it's a great exhibition of his perfect righteousness that he does not tolerate some sin. In fact, he doesn't tolerate any sin. He executes his wrath, we've already read in the book of Romans, against all sin. Not just some. Some of the wrath he executes on the sinner. Some of it on Christ. On behalf of those on whom he shows mercy. Well, this is awful. The mercy of God is a terrible thing. We should just go ahead and admit it. The mercy of God is, well, we could use the word awesome, except we've trivialized that word. It, it generates awe. Except awesome doesn't mean that anymore, so I'm using the word awful because that's a little more like the reality of the situation. God's glory is revealed in his righteous judgment of sinners. The greatness of God is observed by all who can observe in the execution of his wrath. We all fall down on our faces before the living God observing the execution of his wrath. This is what so terrified Isaiah when he found himself suddenly confronted with God in person. But the righteousness of God, the glory of God, also is revealed in righteous mercy. I'm just summarizing the argument of the book of, of chapter 9 of the book of Romans. What if God glorifies himself in the execution of his wrath and in the dispensation of his mercy? That takes my breath away. And that's the point. I'm, I've been given the right to call this righteous one, Abba. That is not a lightweight thing. It is awful. Is awful. So when we're looking at the mercies of God, 
we rejoice in terror. Saved. 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 Well, in chapter 9, Paul's talking about the sovereign nature of God's mercy. In chapter 10, he's talking about the indiscriminate nature of God's mercy. And no, I don't know exactly how those two things go together, but they do. Praise God. Because in chapter 10, let's, let's look at verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I ask you in that text, what does your salvation depend upon? Your confession and faith which, by the way, are two ways of talking about the same thing. You rely on the work of Christ and not your own. You come to Christ in faith. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For Scripture says, whoever, 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 believes in him will not be disappointed. Jesus said, I never turn anyone away. No one comes to me. This is all in one text. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. God's mercies are sovereign. But I never turn anyone away. Anyone can come. The offer is real. We have actual real agency in this matter. We decide. We decide in the context of God's decision, but we do decide. And you cannot be a biblical Christian if you don't believe in the sovereign nature of God and the real responsibility of people. It's available to everyone. Anyone can come. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will not, I'll decide whether to give you rest. I will give you rest. God gives faith. We believe. The Spirit works. He takes away the blindness of our sinfulness. We see Christ for who he really is. And we respond in faith. We believe. By the way, in Romans chapter 10, this also involves our duty to share the gospel. He goes on. 
There's no distinction between Jews and Greeks, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. It doesn't matter what kind of ethnicity you have. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Nothing about your worldly status matters. Anyone can come. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? This is one of those great missionary preacher texts, you know. Got to be sent, got to be sent. Preachers got to be sent. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word, the announcement of Christ. So because the dispensation of God's mercy is indiscriminate, we are given the privileged task of telling anyone and everyone and seeing what happens. It's available to all. This gets repeated in chapter 11. And again, Paul's talking about the, the, this, what about the Jewish people problem? And he's talking about, well, they can, they can come. And in fact, you Gentile believers are an encouragement to them to come. And he concludes in verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. Now, I believe in this text, he's talking about Israel, the true Israel, the Israel that comes to faith in Christ. He says in verse 30, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. Here's how that worked. It was because the Jewish people represented in their leaders failed to recognize their Messiah when he showed up, that he was crucified, which results in anyone and everyone's salvation. If they didn't disobey, you couldn't be saved. This is awful in the best way. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. This is the mercy delivered by the cross of Christ. For God has shut up all (laughs) in disobedience. That, of course, was the point of the whole first three chapters, or two and a half chapters of the book of Romans. There's no one righteous, none, not one. No one is looking for God. 
People who go around looking like they're looking for God are really looking for something other than God that they can put in the place of God. And the only, one, any, the only way anyone ever actually sees God is to really see Christ. That's what he said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For God has enclosed, imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all indiscriminate. And that leads us to the conclusion of chapter 11. (laughs) The crushing beauty of God's mercies. I just want you to not take casually that expression in chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercies. Because the true view of God's mercies is terrifying good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is not a, oh, that's so nice type of thing. It's more like, what? Uh, What? He did what? I get what? And so Paul concludes, oh, that's the perfect word to begin the conclusion. Oh, the depth. The depth. Do you know, I know that if you know Christ, you know the mercies of God. Do you know the depth? You haven't even started. The depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The wealth of God, the wisdom of God. We just read the wise sovereign hand of God in chapter 9. Does anyone get it? Does, does, does anyone here read Romans chapter 9 and go, oh yeah, I see what you mean. No. We go, oh, oh no, oh. That's our response. What? The depth of the wealth of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his decisions, his judgments, his discriminations. And his ways past finding out. This reminds me of, I think it was Jeremiah who says, his way, my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My ways are higher than your ways. As, as the sky is high. <laughs> How high is the sky? Well, I don't know, and neither do you. Higher than you know. However high you think it is, it's higher than that. You can't figure it out. You can't go that far. 
It's beyond, beyond his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been the Lord's counselor? Who's given something to the Lord that so that now the Lord owes him? You know, there are a lot of people who think of themselves as in the position of being owed something by God. The answer is nobody. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The mercies of God are unfathomable. And yet we are called to fathom them. The very next verse says, in view of God's mercies. So here's what we are called to do by this text of the book of Romans, I believe. Explore the mercies of God and keep exploring until you have them figured out. How long will this take? Well, if this is true, the rest of forever. In fact, this is the project of eternal life in heaven, to know God. Jesus said it. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and me, your son. That's, what do you think you're going to do in heaven? It's a giant adventure of knowing him. It goes on for eternity. Every day, I don't know if you're going to sleep or not, but I'm going to use this anyway. Every day you're going to wake up and say, I wonder what I am going to find out today in the adventure of knowing God. His, here we're just talking about one aspect of who he is, his mercies. You know, I could spend forever exploring just that and that alone and I'd never finish. And so in our experience in eternity, there's always hope. Because tomorrow I'm going to find out something new. These are the three things that last, faith, hope, love. Think, how does hope last past the point of me seeing him face to face? Well, I'm going to see him face to face and keep looking. Now, this is the mercies of God, the basis and the instrument of Paul's exhortation. I urge you, brothers, on this basis to present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is the reason to do what he exhorts us to do. And we're going to talk, I think, next time about what that means. Present your bodies, a living sacrifice. We're going to start talking about it anyway. This is the reason. So I want to come back to the question I asked you at the beginning. What's your reason? Every day you get up and you do some stuff. Why? Why? 
Every day you are the person you are. Why? On what basis? What comes before the word therefore in the sentence of your life? Paul is recommending a particular thing to put in that place. To say, well, what comes for, for us who know the mercies of God, what comes before therefore the mercies of God? This is why we have church, everyone. To come back here, to come to this table and go, oh, the mercies of God. The mercies of God. Can you believe it? It's beyond searching. And so what I hope for when I'm teaching you what the Bible says is for you to just get another little bit, glimpse more maybe of the mercies of God in Christ delivered by the work of the Spirit in your life. God Almighty has worked in your life to put your faith in Christ. That is awful. And so when we come to the table, what we do is we say again, oh, the mercies of God. Yes. 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 I'll have that. And we act it out in the symbol of the sacrifice of Christ, the offering of His body and blood that atones for me. <laughs> you can't figure that out. You can't figure that out. Just come and get it. Come and get it. Father, thank you. <laughs> There's nothing more to say. Thank you. Lord, I pray that by the ministry of your word and your spirit, we would be ever mindful of your awful mercy. Struck down by your goodness and grace so that our hearts rejoice and celebrate and sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.